Hello and welcome to Centuries and Saints. This is your host, Scott Matson. Thank you for joining us for episode three of season two, looking at the attributes of God. So we're just going to get right into it today, picking up where we left off last week, looking once again at the holiness of God. I am excited again today to continue what we began last week. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we began a new series here where we are taking a few months, Lord willing, we'll see how long it takes, we'll see what we get to, but uh, just to look at the attributes of God, uh, just to look at all the different facets of God's nature, you know, that we find in the scriptures, and to, to get to know, I guess, in a fresh way, to sort of reacquaint ourselves uh, with the vastness of God, of who He is. All right, and so I'm really, really excited about this. My hope and prayer for myself, for you guys, you know, for all of us, is that uh, we will get to know the Lord better as we study His nature in an in-depth way, and as we get to know Him, that we will love Him more, because we will see that all of His attributes, every part of His nature, even the parts that uh, to us can be a little bit scary— or at times uncomfortable, even those are beautiful and wonderful as well, because God is all good. As the book of James says, uh, there is no darkness in him, no variableness, no shadow of turning. Okay, so last week, then piggybacking on that, uh, last week we actually began looking at the first attribute of God that we're studying, and we did part one of what will probably end up being, actually I know will end up being, a three-part, three-week series, of which today is week two, and that was our look at the holiness of God. All right? So we began looking at that last week, the holiness of God. You know, what it means that God is holy, what that means for us, you know, both pre- and post-salvation. You know, and all those different things. And we began looking at that last week. I had a really good time studying that and taking a look at that last week with you guys. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue that, our look at the holiness of God. And I mentioned this last week, and I want to mention it again just because it's it's an incredible study. It's very, very good. Um, I'm getting a lot of this material uh, from Dr. R.C. Sproul, from his classic teaching series called The Holiness of God. Uh, Now, I'm aware that some of you may not know who that is. Others of you may know who he is. For those of you that know who Dr. Sproul is, uh, you may have certain feelings about him one way or the other, because he is also a very well-known Calvinist theologian. Um, Again, the point of our study today has nothing to do with Calvinism. And so that's why, you know, I, I feel good about recommending Dr. Sproul to you guys. He's a man of God. And this teaching series that he does and that I'm doing as well on the holiness of God uh, doesn't really get into any of that kind of thing, reformed or any of that. It's just simply a look at who God is according to his word. Uh, so I would just encourage you guys, you know, if you feel so led to check that out. It's a very impacting study, and uh, he gets into much more depth than I will have time to get into. Um, But anyways, I just wanted to recommend that to you guys uh, once again. Okay, well, let's dive in, okay? Uh, Where we're going to start today is by taking a little bit of a look into history, and we're also going to be doing some other historical work today, because that's kind of the direction that uh, our teaching has taken. And you guys, if you know me, if you've been tracking, I obviously love history, So whenever you listen to me, you're bound to get some of that. 
Back in the 18th century, which is the 1700s, uh, there was a movement, a revival, called the Great Awakening. Now, you guys, I'm sure, have heard of that. You've got men like John and Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know, Whitfield, men who were a very, you know, important part, who played a pivotal role in that thing that God did. All right, well, to... Uh, very, very much summarize the theological emphasis of the Great Awakening, it was this. Man is really bad, and God is really mad. (laughs) Okay? That's a simplistic way of summarizing uh, Great Awakening theology. Man is really bad, and God is really mad. All right, the messages were so focused on the wrath of God and the anger and the justice of God towards sin and sinners uh, that some took to calling it scare theology. All right. Classic example of that is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, um, I have read and and heard bits and pieces, not the whole thing. Uh, There are things in that sermon that I completely disagree with, uh, certain things that Jonathan Edwards said that theologically I have some issues with uh, related to God's wrath and anger. Uh, But that's a whole other study for a different time. But anyways, uh, that's a classic example of sort of this scare theology from the Great Awakening. <clears throat> so if you're curious just to see, hey, what, what, what was that like? Well, Google Jonathan Edwards' sermons in the hands of an angry God and read it. Uh, you'll get an idea and you'll probably get scared because um, that was kind of the point <laughs> that he had. Which again, Jonathan Edwards was a phenomenal theologian, a great man of God, a great brother in the Lord. Um, so I'm not trying in any way to throw him under the bus. Just giving you an example. All right, well, the next century, the 19th century, which was the 1800s, there was a reaction to that scare theology, and that reaction uh, downplayed God's wrath and anger. Okay, so in the 19th century, people began to react against uh, theology of men like Edwards and all of that, and began to downplay God's wrath and anger towards man's sin and man's sinfulness, and instead emphasized God's love and man's goodness. Okay, so that's what happened in the 1800s, after the Great Awakening. Then in the following century, the 20th century, uh, which would be the 1900s, another group came along and reacted to the 19th century reactors and brought back the teachings of God's wrath towards sin, <clears throat> attempting, excuse me, to be faithful to Scripture. And this was called crisis theology, borrowing the Greek word krasis, which means judgment. Okay? So these people in the 20th century who had reacted to those who had reacted, <laughs> they wanted to take seriously uh, the full counsel of God's word, of scripture, the biblical portrait of God, and they wanted to use all of the Bible to understand his nature in its fullness. Uh, just as a quick side note, that's in a sense what I'm attempting to do with this series we're doing now on the attributes of God. We just want to take all of his word and understand more of who he is and get to know him better. Okay, well, Amongst these people in the 20th century arose a group of extremists uh, who claimed that the places in Scripture which show God angry and wrathful are actually showing us that there is something illogical or even evil within God's nature. 
And some of them went so far as to assert that there was actually something demonic within the nature of God. Now, obviously, that is complete blasphemy, and that is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, None of us would hopefully even dare believe something that stupid um, and that wrong. Um, However, that's an example of what happens when people try and downplay a certain aspect of God's nature because it's not comfortable. All right. Those of us that, you know, are born again, we're in Christ, you know, we've we felt and we know the love of our Father. We feel his delight on us and, and his goodness towards us. You know, um, we affirm that. And I affirm that. And I, I felt that, I do feel that, I believe that. Uh, the scriptures are clear that our Father, you know, for those of us in Christ, He is benevolent towards us. He's shown us His favor and love. All right. But wrath and judgment and justice and holiness are still just as much a part of His nature and character as they've always been. God does not change. Okay. And those things can be uncomfortable for us, quite honestly, because we realize how small we are and how big He is. And that can cause us discomfort. And like I've said, you know, since the beginning of this series, that's okay. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. In fact, I think we, in some, in a sense, it's actually a good thing because we're realizing how big and how holy our God is. So anyways, I I bring that up because I simply want to make the point that we shouldn't try and diminish any part of God's nature simply because it makes us maybe a little uneasy or uncomfortable. You know, we shouldn't try and diminish God to make him more palatable to our human sensibilities. Rather, just take him at his word, know who he is, and walk with him accordingly. And that's what I want all of us to do. And so that's why we're doing the holiness of God. Uh, because it is, in some senses, a scary thing. And it's an overwhelming thing for sure. Okay? Uh, again, as I mentioned last week, as we just talk about the just the unutterable majesty of God and his infinite holiness. You know, we talked about the seraphim, the angels in heaven that are sinless. I mean, they're pure and clean and they dwell in God's direct unveiled presence and they have to cover their eyes and their feet uh, because even they are just absolutely awestruck by the, just the transcendent holiness and majesty of God. You know, so how much more should we, you know, also in a reverent way, you know, tremble. And so, uh, anyways, that is what we are studying. So, uh, let's take a look at scripture here. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, you guys know the story well, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire and the Lord kills them. Okay. (laughs) That's a pretty poor summary of the whole story, but, uh, for the sake of time, you guys can, can read that. Anyways, uh, Leviticus 10. Okay. So after God strikes them dead, In verse 3 of that chapter, Moses reminds Aaron. Aaron, being a father, seeing his two sons killed, would have understandably been distraught. Okay, the scripture doesn't give us really much insight into Aaron's emotional state, but just think about it. If you're a parent and two of your kids were immediately killed, you know, you'd be distraught. We all would. And Aaron was probably really angry at God. I mean, just imagine the emotions. He was probably angry. Moses then reminds Aaron of what God had said. And God had said this, and we read in verse 3, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So the account of the strange fire in Leviticus 10 is, I believe, a very poignant reminder to all of us And for all of eternity, that for those who minister in God's name, for those of us who take his name on our lips and represent him before others, 
you know, that he is very, very serious about being regarded as holy. And he is to be hallowed. And his name is to be reverenced and honored. His majesty is incomprehensible. Okay, and I believe that that's what that passage serves uh, primarily for us as an example and a reminder. You know, that yes, we are comfortable in God's presence, of course. Absolutely. Our Father delights in us and loves us as his you know, little children. Um, at the same time, he's still God. You know, and he is worthy of our awe and reverence and that holy fear. And I believe that's what God is saying. And I want to also make this point, um, you know, lest we swing too far on the pendulum. I, I don't believe at all that Nadab and Abihu were sent to hell. Okay, I think that there can be a tendency in some of our minds that when we read something where God in his anger, because it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled, was aroused, God in his anger and wrath killed Nadab and Abihu. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's what happened. God killed them in his anger. But I think we can tend to read that and think and assume that God sent them to hell. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case at all. There's nothing in the scriptures that would even hint that God did that. I absolutely believe that, you know, they went to the intermediate state, you know, until Christ died and rose again and took them to heaven. And I believe they're in heaven today, you know, enjoying God's presence. Um, So I wanted to make that point because, you know, sometimes I think we can make those assumptions. Moving on into the scriptures, another account is 2 Samuel 6. And you guys know uh, this passage. It's a great passage and it's interesting. Uh, We see that Uzzah and Ahio were escorting the Ark of the Covenant in a cart. And the oxen that were pulling the cart stumbled, and Uzzah saw that the Ark of the Covenant, you know, might fall off the cart. And so, understandably, he reached out his hand to stabilize the Ark, and the Bible tells us that the anger of God was aroused and God killed him. Again, what in the world? What's that about? You know, Uzzah had good intentions. You know, I mean, at least we, as far as we know, Uzzah's intention was good. He's like, I don't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall off of this cart and land in the dirt. You know, I want it to be stable and and not topple over. I think that's true. I would guess Uzzah had good intentions. But God had given very, very specific instructions of how his ark, his presence, because that's how God dwelt physically in his presence with his people in the old covenant before he indwelt our hearts by his spirit. He dwelt physically, in a sense, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so God had given in the law very, very specific instruction on how the Ark was to be handled. Okay, it was only to be handled by men who were from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Also, the Ar- Uzzah, Uzzah was not of the tribe of Levi. <clears throat> also, the Ark was to be carried on these poles through the loops by men on their shoulders. Okay. But the people were transporting the ark on a cart being pulled by oxen. So the people were doing things, again, you know, whatever your views on where the Ark of the Covenant may or may not be today, uh, I have no idea. I don't honestly really care. Um, Because if we were to see the ark today, that would be awesome and amazing. uh, But it would just be a golden box. Because the presence of God, which dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, that changed. We are now the temple of God. God dwells in people, redeemed people, and not in temples made with hands, not in boxes. Okay, so to us, this kind of doesn't make sense. But in the Old Covenant, this was the time when God's manifest physical presence and glory dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. And, and remember, the Ark of the Covenant normally, when, when the tabernacle was erected in the temple, was in the Holy of Holies. 
Okay, so God was very, very, very serious about his commandments, about how his presence was to be handled by the people. Okay, and Uzzah and Ahio and the other people, uh, in every way, were breaking God's commandments. And they were doing that which was contrary to what God had prescribed in his word. And again, I believe that kind of like with Nadab and Abihu, and kind of like in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira, I believe this is an example for us, that God is reminding his people both then and now that I take my holiness and my presence very, very seriously. Okay, it's not something to be trite or casual, you know, about. It's not something to be cavalier about. God takes his holiness very seriously. Now, again... I want to say this. There is nothing in the text to suggest that God condemned Uzzah eternally. I don't think Uzzah's in hell. I believe fully that he's in heaven, enjoying the presence of God. You know, Um, (laughs) you know, so again, don't get that idea. But I believe that these serve as examples for us of just how serious God takes his holiness. I want to mention a German theologian named Hans Kuhn, and he wrote a very classic work on the topic of justification. Hans Kuhn wrote that the mystery of iniquity is not that the holy creator God would exercise justice on his creation who have willingly rebelled against him and declared war on him, but rather the mystery is that God from the very beginning and from generation to generation, has shown incredible mercy, compassion, and grace. We tend, you know, to come at things from a man-centered perspective. Well, you know, if, well, I don't like the idea that God would actually judge people and that there's actually hell. I don't, I don't like that. You know, that's not fair. We're all kind of good people, aren't we? Well, no, we're not, actually. The Bible teaches that we are dead in sins and trespasses, okay, and that God has to bring us to life. That's our only hope. All right, so again, Hans Kuhn said that, look, uh, the mystery is not why a holy God would exercise justice and wrath upon rebellious, sinful creatures who have declared war on him. The mystery is that God has been so gracious from the very beginning, forgiving sin and iniquity. It's amazing. And, And I agree, it is amazing that the holy God, rather than just destroy all of his creation for their sin would come and allow himself to be destroyed on the cross, to die and rise again so that sinful creation could be reconciled back to him. That is incredible mercy, unfathomable mercy and grace. You know, and it's amazing because we read in Ezekiel 18.20, God's sentence on sin and on sinners, where God said the person who sins will die. Okay, that is God's perfect justice. Paul in Romans says the wages or the reward, what you've earned, you know, of sin is death. And yet God shows incredible patience and compassion and grace towards all of his creation, not just towards us who are redeemed, his children, but also towards all people. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.45 that God the Father is good towards all, that he provides for the needs of those who willfully rebel against him. You know, those who have declared war on him. Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were his enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And so that means that all of creation has, because of sin, humanity declared war on God. We've made ourselves his enemy, and yet God shows incredible grace. To the, to the unredeemed, He still provides food and shelter and money and happiness and love and all of those things. And to the redeemed, he not only gives us all of that, but he gives us eternal life. 
It's, in, it's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. And even throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is consistently pouring out his grace and mercy rather than his wrath and justice on people, you know, who deserve his justice. Time and again, you know, God pours out mercy. Look what God did for David. David committed adultery, which was worthy of the death penalty according to the Torah. Okay, David then, rather than confess his fault, covered it up and had the woman's husband murdered. Okay, and then David spent like nine months or so lying about it. Okay, that was terrible. Now, had God given David justice, God would have just killed David because that's what he deserved for his sin. But God poured out such amazing grace on David, preserved him, even sent Nathan the prophet to rebuke him, which led David to repentance and restored fellowship with God. It's amazing that God did that because God is infinitely holy and majestic. It's just so amazing. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul in his uh, teaching series says this, the minute you think that God owes you mercy... A bell should go off in your brain that warns you and tells you that you're no longer thinking about mercy. For by definition, mercy is voluntary. God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature. He doesn't owe you mercy. Amen. Now, think about that. That sounds kind of harsh, but it's actually a way to get an insight into God's incredible grace and love as we talk about his holiness. The fact that, you know, sometimes I think we, you know, I know I do this, we take our salvation for granted. And we think, oh, God is obligated to show mercy and compassion to everyone. You know, God is love, right? So, I mean, he, he just kind of has to. No, he doesn't. Mercy is voluntary. God is not obligated to show mercy. God doesn't owe anybody mercy because we've all sinned against him. But rather than exercise his justice against all of us, he's given us mercy and grace. So as we study God's holiness and we tremble in fear and awe of this majestic God that we serve, it's funny, we actually get an even greater sense of his love and of his mercy and his grace. You know, and that's, that's just one of the, <laughs> the interesting things that I have found as I've been studying this topic and this issue is that the more I study God's holiness the more I also get a glimpse of his grace and mercy. And I'm just in awe of how kind he is. It's so good. It is so good. Okay. My goodness. You know that this, this God with whom we deal and to whom we must give account, he is holy, holy, holy. As we talked about last week, uh, that attribute of God, the only one that is mentioned three times in succession, uh, which is basically the Hebrew way of saying, listen up, this is incredibly important, you know, uh, that our God, again, like I said before, even the angels in his direct unveiled presence have to cover themselves uh, because they, I mean, they just, (laughs) they can't even behold him directly because he's so holy and so weighty and his brilliance and his presence, you know, he dwells in that unapproachable light and, you know, he hasn't changed. Uh, you know, he's still that way. And I think, you know, C.S. Lewis did a fantastic job of, uh, of, of dealing with that, that tension in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, where that classic story in one of the books where, you know, Lucy is thirsty. And so she goes up to uh, the river or the lake or whatever it was, I can't recall exactly, you know, and she wants to take a drink. But standing between her and the shore or the bank or whatever is Aslan, the lion, who is the, you know, kind of the, the figure, <clears throat> you know, allegorically of Jesus in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lucy's scared. She's very scared. 
and, and, and I'll probably butcher this, but just really quickly, I just want to mention it because it's so, it's so cool. And it's such a great way of, of living in this tension. She says, you know, I'm thirsty. <clears throat> Will you get out of my way? Because I want to go up to the water and, and, and drink. And Aslan says, no, I won't get out of your way. And she says, okay, well, if I come near, do you promise not to eat me? And he says, I promise nothing. <laughs> you know, and then she asks him, have you ever eaten little girls? And he basically responds like, I've eaten entire empires and kings and kingdoms, you know, which is an allegorical way of saying Christ rules over all as king. And as she approaches him, she hears this sort of deep, deep roar you know, coming from him. But it wasn't something that incited terror and dread, but more of just like a reverence and a respect and an awe. And then later on in the Chronicles of Narnia, you guys know the story, you know, where she's talking to another one of the creatures and says, you know, is Aslan safe? And, you know, one of the creatures just laughs and says, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. And for those of you Narnia purists or Lewis purists, forgive me, I just butchered that. I think that's a great example for us. And I want to close out our time today um, as we begin to descend this plane by dwelling on that for just a second. You know, there's a tension there that we as Christians have to live in. You know, um, like I said earlier in the show, all respect to Jonathan Edwards, um, phenomenal theologian, incredible intellect. Uh, But, you know, he kind of fell on sort of, I think, the extreme side of the justice, anger, and wrath part of God's nature. Uh, But on the other side, though, I think is kind of where the church has tended to drift today, that we exalt God's love and grace above every other one of his attributes, when we shouldn't exalt any attribute of God above the others. We should just proclaim God who he is, you know, as he's revealed himself in his word. And, you know, the whole Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt thing, you know, that sort of just almost flippant, sort of just careless, anything goes view of God. That's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think both are wrong. You know, I think there's a, as Christians, God, that's the, that's the beautiful thing is that our comfort is not God's top priority. I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to always just be comfortable. In fact, I know biblically we're not supposed to be, you know, our God, is he safe? Well, in, in a sense, no. Um, in a sense, of course, yes, he's our father and he saved us. But in a sense, like he's not safe. He's not tame, but he is good. And I think there's, there's a tension, <clears throat> a healthy tension that we as believers have the privilege of living and walking in. You know, as I've been studying, you know, this attribute, the holiness of God and just being in awe and being a little bit scared at times. And uh, uh, frankly, probably more than anything, just kind of overwhelmed. Like, my goodness. Wow. God, you are holy and majestic and righteous in every way. And Lord, I see myself and I'm not, not even close. And that causes me again, just to run to the cross and to thank him so much for his mercy and grace. And that's the funny thing. It's counterintuitive, but as we study the holiness of God and we get uh, overwhelmed and and experience some uncomfortable emotions, it's in that that I think we actually get a much more substantial picture of his love and grace because we see how amazingly merciful and gracious and loving he is because we see him and then we see ourselves in light of who he truly is. And then it just causes us in humility just to fall on our knees and say, thank you, you know, for saving me, for giving me eternal life. 
you know, and allowing me to enjoy you as father. You know, I've mentioned it before. John Calvin, the the French reformer, the famous reformer, said that true Christian piety is composed of two things. One, to fear God as king and Lord, and two, to love God as father. And I think that's beautiful. I think that perfectly captures uh, the tension that we as Christians are called to live in. So we're done. I am going to close out this teaching time with one final quote from Dr. R.C. Sproul, and I'll leave it here at that. That we might understand that in the presence of a holy God, that how we who are unjust may be justified is by the fact that God in his holiness, without negotiating his holiness, has offered us the holiness of his Son as a covering for our sin, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in to Centuries and Saints. As always, please go to the podcast store, write us a review, leave us a rating. It really helps and we appreciate it. Well, hey, thank you for hanging with me today. And I'll be back next week to conclude our look at the holiness of God. So for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott Matson. Until next time. See?